Welcome to the Innocents, where the tenants are hiding under their tables, standing in doorways, covering themselves with pillows because the entire complex is shaking. The Innocents trembled as Daphne turned Deborah, howled and threw a temper tantrum, making it feel like the building was being shaken by an earthquake. Rooms retched to and fro, chandeliers swayed, light bulbs burst, pimples popped, and the rumbling worked up Bethany Ann on the second floor so much she was able to finally pass the kidney stone that had been haunting her for weeks. And then the power went out. This is Blinding Innocence. It seems we've made it to the quintessential power outage episode of the season. Something like this comes along every year. It's nighttime. It's dark. Shadows are darting. People are whimpering. And candles are being lit. Except for on the 23rd floor. Everyone on that floor has to use battery-powered camping lanterns. They were provided by Mr. McClickluck... Mr. McClickluckle after the floor reopened after renovation. With the subterfuge of darkness, the killer, still in the building, was bound to strike again. And with no leads, tenants in the Innocents weren't opening their doors, even for DoorDash. And then, someone on the second floor heard a blood-curdling scream. <laughs> they thought there was another murder, but... It was just Bethany Ann passing that God-forsaken kidney stone, the one that felt sharper than childbirth. On the bed in some strange room, Betty Lou began to rustle herself awake. Her head leans side to side. She rubbed her face, yawned. <sighs> the smell of butthole breath seeping into the air. She opened her eyes to darkness. Oh no, she said aloud. I'm blind. The killer blinded me. She pulled herself off the bed, stuck her hands out in front of her and looked for the window. If she was still in the innocence, the layout would be familiar enough. If she could just get to the window, if she could just open the room darkening curtains, she would be able to see if she could actually see. She stumbled over a shoe, tripped and fell, her face smacking into the carpet. She pulled herself back up, leaned forward, found the curtains. With all her might, she tore them open to show off. No light. Oh, she really was blind. She crawled back to the bed and started to sob. But wait, this didn't feel like her bed. She felt around more to find her purse, and inside was still her phone. The killer was stupid and didn't take her phone. Oh, the killer must have known Betty Lou would have needed the flashlight. She tapped her phone. It turned on, and by golly, she could see the screen. She could see. The killer didn't make her blind. It was just a power outage. <laughs> she crawled out of the bed once more, now with some form of light to see around her. The bedroom was bare, except for the bed, and 
As she shone her flashlight around the king-size bed, her eyes landed on something that made her stomach sink. In the middle of the bed were three bloody knives. And then there was a knock on the door with a shout. The police! So, a little of exposition here. It seems Nards and Wiener discovered that one of the units in the Innocence was for sale, but the listing had been taken down, and the only one who knew that the unit was empty was Mr. McClucal. And, well, he was dead. Killed by one of the knives Betty Lou found on the bed next to her. So, the killer's lair was found, and it was very disappointing. I was hoping for candelabras and giant gothic-looking curtains hanging from every corner of the room. You know, the minute Betty Lou woke up, I was hoping for the clown-faced killer rowing toward her in some boat surrounded by stage smoke, reaching a hand out to Betty Lou, singing that she would be the angel of music, singing songs in her head. And now nighttime sharpens and... Oh, oh, <laughs> that's Phantom of the Opera. Oh, gosh. The only prop our killer had is a feather. How lame. Daphne hyphen Deborah. We're going to use a hyphenate when referring to her, okay? No? You don't like that? Um, Defebra? Should we recombine her two names together as if she were a celebrity couple? That sounds good to me. I mean, is she Daphne? Is she Deborah? Is she dating Zool? Who knows? <clears throat> Anywho. Defebra's ears perked. She heard a scuttle, and she was hungry. She opened her windows, the curtains blowing in her face. She swatted at them, looking like an enraged Frankenstein's monster, until she freed herself from the tangle. She reached her hand out the window, and the scuttling she sensed tried to leap over her hands, but she grabbed it by its neck and snapped it. The squirrel's body lay limp. She took the small rodent to the kitchen, opened the blender, and shoved it in there. A powerless condominium was no challenge for Defebra. She merely put the lid back onto the blender, touched it, and then pushed the pulse button. After a few rounds, her milkshake was done. She poured the clumpy mass into a cute 50s-inspired glass and then shoved a straw in it. She sucked hard. Chunks of squirrel bone would sometimes get caught in the straw, but after a few large inhales, they would shoot out and bounce off her tongue. Her eyes rolled back in her head. Mm, delicious. Then there was a knock on the door. She placed her milkshake down, opened it to find Nards standing at the door with the candle lit, orange flickering off his mustache. Daphne, he said. My name is Deborah. Yes, sorry, Deborah. My name is Inspector Nards. I just, well, I was hoping we could talk. Please come in. I was just enjoying a milkshake. Oh, 
That sounds nice. Chocolate? Strawberry? Squirrel. Nard swallowed a gag. He wasn't sure if he was able to kiss Daphne ever again. Would this possession end the relationship? He hoped not. I just wanted to get to know you better. Find out why you are here. I live here. I have ever since 1992. But I have paperwork here that says you, well, vacated the apartment back in 1998. Defebra took the papers from Nard's hands. Her eyes began to glow, and she read the papers. Deborah's physical presence left in 1998. She's been here ever since, biding her time, waiting for the right time. The right time for what, if you don't mind my asking? Retribution. It's time for someone to pay. Do you know who it is that has to, well, pay? This is why I am here. I do not. I must figure it out. Well, I thought I could help. How? You're just a small, meat-covered man with a gnarly mustache. I brought this. Nards took the Ouija board box from under his arm and showed it to Defebra. Ooh, that's my favorite game. She took the box from him, along with his candle, and sat it down on her coffee table. Once the board and planchette were placed, Defebra motioned for Nards to sit down. Once they were settled, she placed her hands on the teardrop-shaped plastic piece. He placed his hands on top of hers. The hairs on his arms stood up on ends. Either she was electric, or he was just as attracted to this Deborah chick as she was with Daphne. Let us begin. What is the name of the ghost that killed me back in 1998? The planchette began to move and pointed to J O N A T H O and then N. But that's not possible, Nard said out loud. Jonathan is living. New storylines are beginning to open up, but we need to close up some of the other storylines before it begins to get too out of control. I really hope we can put this killer thing to bed and be done with it before we get wrapped up in more melodrama. I can only handle so much at once. I'm just kidding. I want all the melodrama. Usually at this point in the season, some new character steps foot into the storyline, someone mysterious, and they help twist the plot up so much that it almost gets tangled. Oh, wait. I was just handed a note card from the producers. Oh, it seems the next scene will not be a new mysterious character. Instead, we're just going to get to Jonathan, who is sitting on, well, the John. Jonathan sat on the John, up on the roof near the pool. He had looked around to make sure no one else was there. When he decided it was safe, 
he pulled his pants down and sat, relieving himself of, well, a spicy burrito. Once he was done pushing, he pulled out his phone, dialed a number, and placed it to his ear. He wanted to speak to Nards, to inform Nards of his plan, but a voicemail would have to do. After the beep, Jonathan began to talk. Nards, instead of just waiting and listening and looking, I decided to try and bring the killer to us. I have blackmailed every single person in the Innocence Complex to join me in the lobby tomorrow at midnight. I would assume power would be restored by then, and we will be able to look around and see who isn't there. That should hopefully narrow down our suspects. Jonathan hung up, wiped. Oh no, it was going to be one of those, wasn't it? He threw the wad of toilet paper into the bowl and grabbed a fresh wad, wiped, and repeated. Oh, it was not going away. He repeated, alternating toilet paper and wiping, toilet paper and wiping, but oh, it was a cruel game. <sighs> he sighed, gave up, and decided a water pick would do the trick. He flushed the toilet but the streaky cloud of toilet paper swirled in a lazy circle, and then the toilet <sighs> choked on it, sending the water to rise up and flow out. Once Jonathan was out of the bathroom, the stall door to the right opened, and the clown-faced killer stepped off the toilet. Water flowed around their boots, and they said out loud, Jonathan, dear, you... Just made my job so much easier. Welcome to the innocence where everyone is just dying to live. Is Betty Lou really the murderer? Will Nards and DeFebra fall in love? And did Jonathan really just send the entire cast of the innocence to their deaths? Tune in next time for the season finale of Blinding Innocence.
blinding innocence.